Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks given by Zenki Dilo Roshi at the Boulder Zen Center in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Bryant Coley at the Boulder Zen Center. I want to tell you very quickly about what's going on here. After 40 years in existence, the center and its sangha have reached a turning point. With Zenki Roshi now in Boulder as our full-time teacher, along with the residential staff, we have the chance to realize the original vision for the center. Now, I could say plenty about what that means, but we went ahead and made a video that tells the whole story. Check it out at boulderzen.org donate. This project will only succeed if everyone interested in Zenki Roshi's teaching and the continuation of the Boulder Zen Center gets involved. We need your support in order to take the next steps in transforming our center and making our programs available to anyone online. So please, after the talk, go to boulderzen.org donate, watch our new video, and decide if it's something important to you, something you want to be a part of. You can make a one-time donation or become a BZC member, which comes with many benefits, including an archive of Zenki Roshi's past Dharma talks, stuff that isn't published on the podcast. So that's all from me for now. Here's Zenki Roshi. Good morning. It's um, great to see everybody. I'm not in the Zendo today. And... Um, the reason is that I'm on a five or six week writing retreat. I, um, with the help of our friend Matt Zeppelin, I got a book deal with Shambhala Publications and uh, also with um, a German publisher. So I'm I'm trying to finish a book, and um, so that's why I'm not going to be in the Zendo for a while and trying to get that work done. And um, also, as a matter of housekeeping, I um, we will be offering a course, a practice course that can be all online, of course, during this pandemic, starting in um, at the very end of January, going for eight weeks. So uh, we have a new website. If you are interested, um, check it out. Uh, during those eight weeks, the, the podcast and these talks will be interrupted, um, but I will be available for for certain things, like uh, probably we'll have uh, some of these Sangha dialogues that we started, Mondo, available. So anyway, please stay tuned and we'll be informing you. Okay, I've been talking about working with habits and the rubric under which that is dealt with in Buddhism is karma. So I want to continue with that a little bit. And for those of you who weren't there for the last couple of talks, I'll just recapitulate um, briefly. In the last talk, I've mentioned that in Buddhism, karma is um, dealt with in three registers. The first register is a kind of mechanical theory of action. Karma means action. And what emerges from that is a, is a view of the world in which um, each action is a cause for an effect. And each effect becomes a cause for another effect. So the world is seen as this web of, this interactive web in which all actions lead to more actions and uh, bear fruit and results into the future. And so I think experientially and practically speaking, the, the biggest uh, result from this kind of worldview that Buddhism presents is that we are responsible. We are responsible for the life that we're, we find ourselves in, both individually and collectively. So what, what comes out of that is basically the question, are we going to take responsibility for our 
actions of body, speech, and mind? And will we study what kind of effects our actions of body, speech, and mind have for ourselves and for others? And that's the topic of habits. You know, what are, what are the habits that govern our lives and how can we find a way to potentially change them? And I said that habits can appear very solid, but really habits are insubstantial because they are nothing but repeated action. If you repeat a certain type of action over and over again, it becomes a habit and appears rather solid because it's like it's happening all the time, it seems, and it's difficult to step out of it. And the reason it's difficult to step out of it because when it's repeated, it becomes automated and it becomes subconscious, so we're not really choosing all the time what we're doing. It can feel like we're just on auto- autopilot and it's happening to us. And the second, um, the second register under which karma is, is talked about in, in Buddhism is basically an ethical theory of, um, behavior change. So, this is about, can we change our actions, can we change the habits that govern our action in the direction of more benefit to ourselves and others? And how, basically, this this big question that Buddhism asks, how can we benefit all beings, which includes ourselves? So um, <clears throat> it's normal, I think, that we are very much focused on our personal lives. It's like you can study how what you're doing affects yourself, how it affects others. When you notice that certain habits or certain types of actions affect others negatively, you start to maybe develop a motivation of changing those habits making them more functional and beneficial and less harmful and less dysfunctional. And um, some of you know, you know, how much I resonate with the ecological crisis that we're in. Uh, I recently saw this uh, movie on Netflix that came out where David Attenborough, you know, makes a personal statement of his lifelong interaction with the wild and the, di- the disappearance of wilderness during his lifetime. So, anyway, it just reminded me how much our this web of cause and effect isn't just my personal life. It's it's all of life on the planet, and how um, destructive our actions are as a collective. You know how this ecological crisis we find ourselves in is actually unfolding through these um, mega trends of overpopulation, pollution, um, global warming, and and uh, species extinction. It's um, it's this tsunami of death that's happening, and strangely, it's happening sort of out of view for us. We know about it but we don't experience it uh, directly. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because, in my view, this is the biggest topic of our lifetime, and it will mean that our habits will have to change dramatically. <clears throat> because in this, you know, in this first register of a theory of cause and effect, it becomes clear that when the effects of our actions become causes that basically um, mean that we don't have, that we are losing the basis for uh, living healthily on this planet and sustaining our life. Um, something needs to change. But it also means, I think this this theory of, of cause and effect also shows how entangled we are in this web how much we're just participating in the routines that have been developed, not just by us, but by our fellow human beings and uh, previous generations, and how difficult it is to unentangle ourselves. It's not 
actually possible. You can't unentangle yourself from the use of plastic. If you think about it, you know. Just buying groceries, you are entangled in the web of plastic production and the pollution that results from that. So, this isn't just, this isn't just about some, you know, I feel like a problematic person and uh, I need to do something to better myself. Uh, the, the way I want to point our attention to how this idea of karma is um, all-encompassing and actually governs the way the planet functions and how we participate in it. I don't mean the planet, I mean the web of life hosted by this planet. planet. And then the third register is a transformative project of liberating ourselves from conditioning. That's how Buddhism has also talked about karma. So in that, in that register, karma is the villain and we need to, you know, find a way to free ourselves from what karma is doing to us. So, I'm interested in a couple of questions here. One is, you know, is it possible to free yourself from conditioning? I mean, to be an unconditioned being? You could say, to make it, to make it more tangible, you know, a being without habits, a being with, um, without causing effects, without a being that isn't being affected. Is that even possible? You know, I think there are these kinds of uh, ideas that are floating around um, in Buddhism, but also in other religions. It's like th- that's you could you could call that the, that's the theme of transcendence. How we can transcend our human condition and enter into the realm of the unconditional. And I'm also interested in how how this idea of um, freeing ourselves from conditioning relates to this second register of of uh, an ethical um, an ethical intention of uh, changing our behavior in the direction of more beneficial action so there's this koan in uh, the book of serenity case number 8 and it's um in it it, it takes place in Baijiang's temple and Baijiang is giving a lecture and this old monk has been showing up for Baijiang's lecture he's he's uh, he's there every time Baijiang is lecturing and one day he stays behind as the assembly is clearing the the dharma hall and Baijiang says uh, who are you and the old monk says, well, I, you know, in ancient times during Buddha Kashyapa, I, uh, I was here on this mountain. <clears throat> you know, Kashyapa is, um, a Buddha before Shakyamuni Buddha. So it's really ancient times. So this old guy was on this mountain and, uh, a monk asked him, um, a highly what about a highly cultivated person, you know, meaning an enlightened person? Does such a person uh, fall into cause and effect or not? And the old monk says, I answered, this person does not fall into cause and effect. He's talking to Baijan, right? So he's reporting. I told the student, such a person does not fall into cause and effect. And I fell into the body of a wild fox for 500 lifetimes. And then he says, uh, Master, can you turn a word for me to help me? And Baijiang says, such a person, you know, an enlightened person, a highly cultivated person, 
is not blind to cause and effect. And upon hearing these words, the old monk was enlightened. So that's the story. The koan makes very clear that uh, the old monk's statement that an enlightened person does not fall into cause and effect is wrong. It's a mistake. It's characterized um, in the commentary as a nihilistic view. So, it means, according to... Uh, our tradition, uh, this Zen tradition, it's not possible to um, step out of the web, the interactive web of cause and effect. We are part of it. But Baijiang is... Um, is turning this turning this statement around and he's not completely dismissing it he's saying such a person is not blind to cause and effect so he's um he's uh, offering the middle path an enlightened person is free of cause and effect and not free of cause and effect at the same time. Or you can say, uh, enlightened person is neither uh, subject to cause and effect nor not subject to cause and effect. And um, that may sound a little bit abstract, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to um, open it up for us um, experientially. So, the koan is making clear that it's not possible to live outside of cause and effect. Uh, but it's also making clear that, that realization, awakening, freedom, is, uh, changes our relationship. Changes our relationship to cause and effect. And then it, and then it points also, it also points out in the commentary mostly what the nature of this changed relationship is. And the nature of this changed relationship is a kind of, kind of shamanic dousing. So I don't know, I don't know if that's true for us, but that's what the koan presents. There's this line, uh, that says, um, the spirit songs and ritual dances spontaneously form a harmony. And the clapping happens in the intervals. And it's a little bit like, you know, this, these spirit, um, I don't know Chinese, um, culture and history, you know, culture of that time so much, but, I looked this up a little bit and there are these shamans um, that that were, you know, singing and dancing and uh, making a connection with, that's why I'm calling it shamanic dowsing, making a connection with um, a certain level of uh, of reality that can come together in this awakened person and and create a certain kind of order of participation. Anyway, I think that's the feeling that the koan is trying to evoke, that our changed relationship to cause and effect is, is, is having that kind of quality. A spontaneous forming of harmony, of appropriateness of fitting in. Okay. So, this idea of a middle path, it's like Nagarjuna's um, discussion of samsara and nirvana. 
Now, Nagarjuna famously said, um, the boundaries of nirvana, the boundaries of freedom from the, the world in which uh, we are free from suffering, so the boundaries of nirvana and the boundaries of samsara, the world of suffering, are exactly the same. This is a this is this is a startling statement. You know, you ne- you need to stay with it a little bit. It's like the the world of nirvana and the world of samsara are exactly the same. There isn't a transcendent world. We're not going anywhere different. But the relationship to that world must have changed for the person experiencing nirvana because if it hadn't changed, if it hadn't changed, there would be no distinction between samsara and nirvana. So there's some distinction, and I'm proposing right now, the distinction is that the relationship has changed. Now, I I always have a problem with words like nirvana and enlightenment and 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 such, you know. Because um well there's there's several reasons. Like with a word like nirvana, one problem is that it's a foreign word. So we don't we don't really need we don't really know what it means. No. So you read about it, and somebody gives you a kind of conceptual translation. And so it always remains a little bit alien. But with a word like enlightenment, it's actually the opposite. Like like somebody translated... um, Somebody translated something into the word enlightenment, and now that word carries all kinds of unhelpful associations for us. You know, the European enlightenment, light, you know, all all sorts of things, you know, that we imagine with the word enlightenment. Okay, so I think it's really important that we kind of remain a little bit in a state of not knowing what this actually is supposed to mean. Just don't know what it means. It's like you 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 get a word like nirvana and you actually allow yourself to know to not know what it means. And from that not knowing mind you kind of um let something arise experientially. I also have a problem with these words because they are so entity-like, you know, nirvana. That's like a state, or that's something, that's a realm. Like a thing that can we, that we can reach or inquire, uh, acquire or something. But nothing is a thing. Nothing is a static, is something static. And Nirvana isn't either. So the best thing that I was able to come up with for my own practice is to to relate to this idea of nirvana in terms of a nirvanic moment. Um you know, liberation, nirvana is liberation from suffering as a traditional concept. It means it's a, it's liberation from suffering. And when does liberation from suffering occur? The only time that liberation from suffering can occur is now. The time for liberation from suffering, or the time for nirvana, is always now. It's not later. 
are you are you noticing in your own mind how how ingrained this habit is of thinking that nirvana will happen later talk about habit you know habit of mind that's that's a habit of mind this is very important that you you know find a way to interact with that habit and 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 change it the time for nirvana is now and so what is now now is a nirvanic moment potentially now is a samsaric moment and now is a nirvanic moment and i've um i've shared many many times now that i'm i'm defining suffering as the product of um pain and resistance so suffering equals pain times resistance and the cause in in buddhism identifies the cause of suffering that there are two causes for suffering pain and resistance to the pain so if you can remove the pain great but sometimes you can't remove the pain and therefore the only thing that is fully under your control is the resistance part so a nirvanic moment is a moment of non-resistance it's a it's a moment of allowing your experience to be exactly what it is at this time with no desire to change what's happening that's a that's a nirvanic moment it's a moment of non-reactivity and non-interference so think about that in terms of cause and effect a moment of reactivity is a moment of adding action reaction reactivity it's at, it's a moment of adding action resisting action or desiring action to what is happening and to allow to just allow everything to be and appear as it does is actually a moment of freedom from cause and effect it's like it's 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 a kind of it's a kind of stepping out that's why that's why the old monk was seduced into saying uh, a free person does not fall into cause and effect So you know um one way I try to speak about this now is like if if you want to cultivate this um this experience of nirvana of freedom from suffering of um liberating yourself from conditioning it's it, it's it's good i think not i mean as i've already said it's good to not treat nirvana as a constant persistent state but to look for the moments in your life where that kind of liberation has already occurred those moments already exist 
those moments in which you were fully accepting of what's happening already exist, have already happened. Your body and mind already has memory of nirvanic moments, even if you don't remember them consciously. When they occur, my recommendation would be that you savor them. That you sort of feel out what it's like to be like that. Now, you know, one way I have spoken about this and I want to repeat is like this savoring can, is a, is a kind of stabilizing of what we can call the field of mind. What that means is like there is a presence of awareness or there is a, is a, um, yeah, that's, that's good enough to say there's a presence of awareness that is able and willing to accompany whatever happens, whether good or bad. You see, whatever happens, good or bad, is already your experience, right? It's not like, because you don't like it, it's not happening. It's already happening, and on top of that, you don't like it. It's happening, and on top of that, you resist it. It's happening, and on top of it, you are desiring something else. But it's already happening. If it wasn't happening, it wasn't happening. So, you're already dealing with what's happening. So, by implication, you could say, there is already a mind that is able to be with what's happening. So, rather than, you know, another form of desire, I want to be enlightened, or I want to be awakened, or I want to, I really want to know what this is like, um, which would be desiring something that isn't, or, you know, again, uh, something that separates you from uh, what actually is the case. It's better to assume that what, you know, what you're seeking is already the case. And to start savoring the situation. I think I've said this recently to some people. It reminds me of uh, Suzuki Roshi who, who had to respond to his early American students who were eating the unsalted gruel in the first bowl that served in, you know, Zen meals in Orioki. And they said, why isn't this stuff salted? It, it tastes, tastes so boring. <clears throat> and Suzuki said, we're not salting it so that you can, you know, you can find the salt in the, in the rice. It's a little bit like um, savoring, using your sense sensitivity to to find that presence of the field of mind. It's a little bit like searching for that salt in the rice. It's it's not it, it's not um, it's not exciting. I mean, yeah, it's exciting. There's something exciting about noticing that um, presence and the aliveness that comes with it, and sometimes also the bliss, but it's also very unspectacular because it accompanies everything. So, this is this one side, this um, being free of cause and effect. Because 
whatever happens is allowed. This is very different from a state of mind in which you need to fix something about yourself before you can regard yourself as a complete person. Let me see if I can make this um, more accessible. Like, I think most of us start practice with a sense of being a problematic person. You know, there's something about me that is not quite right. You know? I'm not happy enough, or I'm too anxious, or I'm too arrogant, or I'm too uh, shy, or I'm too anxious, or I'm not compassionate enough, or I'm, I, I feel lost in the world, or I get, I'm irritable, and it should really be different, or I'm not intelligent, or I'm not motivated. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some complaint you have about yourself. If you do, if you don't, great. If you don't, if you do, then it is completely normal that practice becomes sort of, you, you start your Buddhist practice, you continue your Buddhist practice as a cure for this personal disease for this problematic nature of your existence. And then, and then, um, you know, I'm going now to the second register of this uh, uh, discussion of karma, and then the idea of behavior change is then in the service of becoming a better person. I'll use my practice to work on this issue. I'm going to understand it better and then change myself. So I'm 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 introducing the idea right now that if you if you uh, adopt this practice of um, savoring nirvanic moments, stabilizing yourself in a field of mind that is able and willing to accompany whatever is happening without finding fault without needing to resist or desiring things to be other than they are. You might find that you're not a problematic person. That there's actually, that you don't have to fix anything about yourself. Yes, you are, yes, we all are the product of conditioning. We, we have, uh, certain habits. But there's a way to accept that, you know? There's a way to accept that I have inherited these habits as a, you know, response to the environment that I grew up in, as a result of my culture, as the result of being a human being in the, you know, endless chain of evolution. You know, for example, the fact that I'm an emotional being, you know, like, what can I do about that? I, I didn't, 
I didn't create that situation, you know, that's evolution. <laughs> the fact that I'm a sexual being, what can I do about that? Jeez, you know, evolution is responsible. <laughs> I'm asking yourself, is it possible to just kind of calm down around what you find yourself to be? Uh, Give up the struggle. I'm not a historian of Buddhism, and I think that's a weakness of mine. You know, I'm not very well informed. Um, So I can't say with authority you know, how this is in the history of Buddhism. But my impression is, you know, Chan, Chinese Chan and Japanese Zen have very much emphasized this third register of liberation from conditioning. You know, you have ideas like original mind, which suggests it's there's this original mind that isn't loaded with, you know, habits and... Um, conceptual framings and you could kind of like there's the idea of you can go be find a way to go reach behind that and uncover this you know open undisturbed original mind that is in a way you know free from from karmic uh, conditioning Whereas in early Buddhism, the second register of replacing mm, replacing dysfunctional, harmful karma with good, beneficial karma is uh, much more in the foreground. It's like, that's all early Buddhism is doing. Mapping ways uh, of understanding what is... Uh, what is non-beneficial and what is beneficial. So I've, I've been, I've been wondering, you know, for a long time how these two ways of dealing with ourselves go together. And what I'm suggesting right now from the point of view of Zen is what comes first is this discovery of not being a problematic person in the first place. Noticing, savoring, stabilizing this experience of a field of mind that is present with everything, that isn't disturbed in the midst of disturbance, that allows that doesn't require that I become a better human being. That doesn't require the world to be different than it is. And then from that place, we engage in changing our habits. But, you know, not as a project of self-improvement, but as a matter of practical engagement with the situation that we're in. You understand? It's like, there's a difference between saying, like, I need to become a better person, so I need to work on X, Y, and Z, or here I am in this situation, and I'm noticing that the habit that I'm bringing to the situation is dysfunctional, so I think it's good to start looking at how I can change it. There is a phrase in the koan that has been with me for a long time. It's kind of buried, you know. It's in the added sayings of the verse behind the commentary, you know. Barely find it. Um, it's, it says, it says, just do good and don't ask about the road ahead. <clears throat> Don't ask about the road ahead. I think that's phenomenal. Because I think most of us practitioners want to 
use practice to create a different self, something that we then can rely on. We want to know where this practice is going to take us. We're asking about the road ahead. But the phrase, the recommendation is, just do good. <clears throat> now, it's not obvious what good is. In, um, in Zen, good is, good is a very undefined place. Quality. It's, it's, it's an appropriateness that is contextual. You don't know what's going to be the right, appropriate, good thing to do uh, tomorrow. You need to let tomorrow happen in order to find out what doing good is tomorrow. You know, doing good, just as liberation, always happens now. Doing good is is uh, is rooted in my intention to benefit all beings, self and other. What that means cannot be known in advance. But it really helps to enter that situation with a matured sense of not being a problematic person. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you enter a situation with the sense that you are a problematic person, you're already cluttering the space with a lot of self-referentiality. It's like, there's something about me that needs to be taken care of before I can engage the situation. Now, Often, we're actually not doing that. So, just like with nirvana, we're often already just fully engaged with the situation without a sense of being a problematic uh, person. And I'm just encouraging you to notice when that happens in your life. Do more of it. But then, you know, that not being a problematic person is also the openness to allow the situation to give feedback. When the situation gives feedback and says, hey, that's not working, the, the, that habit that you're bringing right now isn't working for your fellow human beings, then there is this openness to take that in, to let that feedback work on us. Not like I have a project to change all my habits so that I can be a perfect person that then enters the world, but I'm a person who is completely flawed and I'm entering the world with the attitude of just doing good and not asking about the road ahead. And when the road reveals feedback for me, I'll take it in and I'm going to use it. I ha I'm that open. I feel that unproblematic that I can let that let that behavior change you know this ethical side of the karmic situation i let that unfold i have i have the rest of my life to do that <laughs> this is very much what Dogen says about, but it's, I haven't heard it spelled out this way. Uh, it's very much what Dogen says about delusion and enlightenment in the Genjo Koan, you know, to carry the self forward and, you know, work on the 10,000 things is delusion. That's the self being very self-referential and seeing itself as a problematic person that needs to do something about the world in itself, to let the 10,000 things come forward and work on actualize the self as enlightenment. 
when when you get yourself out of the way and you're allowing the ten thousand things, the myriad the myriad circumstances that cannot be pinned down in advance or in its in their entirety to let them come forward, you know, shamanically dousing the situation. To let those 10,000 things come forward and actualize the self, bring forth action that is in, that is in uh, alignment and attunement with the situation without mucking it up with my own self-referentiality. Then we're actually participating in cause and effect. While being free from it at the same time, this is the this is this is this uh, difficult. I mean, intellectually difficult thought form, but practically, it resides in the practice of not being a problematic person. If that makes any sense, and giving yourself wholeheartedly, engaging like the the corn phrase is saying. Just do good. Don't ask about the road ahead. In this way, our I think our karmic conditioning, our karmic dilemma is being taken care of. One moment at the time, at a time. Accepting the world and ourselves just as we are and fully engaging in the, in the, uh, in the web of cause and effect. Okay. So much for today. But if you like, we can have a discussion. Uh, let's take a break. Ten minutes. You can stretch your legs and have a cup of tea or something. And then um, those of you who want to, we can come back for some dialogue. If you're finding these talks to be inspiring or helpful in your own life, I hope that you can go to our website and make a contribution. It's really vital to Zenki Roshi and to the organization. Send a donation, any amount, or better yet, become a BZC member and get involved. Just in the past week, we've had 10 new members join, which is really fantastic, and we'd be happy to have you join as well. Again, the place to go is boulderzen.org donate. You can check out our new video and decide how you want to contribute. I'm very grateful to have come to Boulder this year with Zenki Roshi and Gel Detchen, our new director, and grateful to the BZC board and the entire Sangha here for welcoming us. There's so many new things going on. We launched a new website and membership portal. Zenki Roshi is offering his first ever practice course this coming January, and we're getting ready to open a new guest business early next year. So we'd be so happy to have your support. Thanks again for listening. Have a happy holiday and new year.